Good morning, church. I guess it's been so long that nobody remembers when the other Brother Bill used to say that. Everybody say, good morning, Brother Bill. Yeah. But I'll never be brother. I'll never be that brother Bill. That's for sure. So, uh, the the so the beginning of the song that you heard that was kind of a one hit wonder. They never really had any other hits in the U.S., did they, Tom? Yeah, they didn't have any major hits. So, but I thought you know Tom got to play for that one hit wonder, and he got to play on their one hit. And then uh, now we get the hit every week from Tom. So, isn't that great? Okay, so this morning. I want to talk about social, and I want to talk about justice. And the definition of the word social first, I want to think about that for a minute. It's an adjective that used to be pretty simple. I looked it up in my 1968 Webster's Dictionary. I have an actual dictionary from 1968, the one I've used since I was 12. And the word social is defined in there as having to do with human beings and their living together and dealings with one another. And online now, of course, that nobody has dictionaries anymore. You get online, right, or you tap the word and it calls up a, a definition. But the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary now gives us this definition of social, of or relating to human society, the interaction of the individual and the group, or the welfare of human beings as members of society. So both definitions are good, but I kind of like the older, simpler definition just a little bit better. And this kind of illustrates what Dave Fox mentioned last week in his sermon, uh, that the meaning of words changes or grows over time, doesn't it? The meaning of social includes what it included in 1968, of course, but today it includes so much more, especially when it's used as an adjective combined with other words which are deeply embedded in our culture. One of those phrases including social is social media. Not even dreamed of in 1968, social media has for better or for worse sometimes both, become a significant force in our culture. If we remember the meaning of social from 1968, we do see that media, typically associated in this context with the Internet, is something else that most of us could not have imagined 53 years ago, but it's been combined with social. And so we have this relatively new phrase, social media, which means communications with people or groups through various media, including pictures, text, video, having to do with human beings and their living together and dealings with one another. So we combine those two phrases, media and social. In countless ways, social media and the Internet has changed the world we live in. Used to be Google, for example, was just a funny word. It didn't really mean anything. Now it's a description of how we search for information. Here's what Googling looked like in the age of stone knives and bearskins. Google apparently can even be a pickup line. Are you Google? Because you have everything I'm searching for. Ladies, if anybody ever uses that line on you, run. Run the other way. Meanwhile, on Instagram, we're seeing what used to be a social occasion, eating a meal together, is becoming now a social media occasion. Everybody's taking pictures of their food to post on social media, right? Social media has changed our priorities in a lot of ways. On Facebook and Twitter, you want to post it first, and then you hold your newborn baby. Post it first. We often don't think about the consequences of our use of social media, like this habit of checking into places that we visit. Anybody do that? You check into places? You, I know some of you do, because I've seen it. 
Well, here's Batman scolding Robin, telling him that the location of the Batcave is meant to be a secret, so stop checking in. A lot of people don't realize that though Facebook only started in uh, 2004, the concept has been around a lot longer. Apparently, posting on your wall was originally cave paintings. Here's one caveman saying, great hunt, let's go eat. And the other one saying, hang on, I've got to post this on my wall. Literal wall, isn't it? Social media has also changed our view of safety protocols in case of fire exit building before tweeting about it. Good safety advice. And for many older people, social media is just plain confusing. So Twitter isn't a bird-watching site? Just think about how social media would have impacted the early church. Here's Jesus checking on the number of followers he has. Of course, he's got a lot more now, doesn't he? All this is just kind of a humorous way of getting into another modern-day use of the word social, which is having a huge effect on society, and it's not nearly as funny, so I had to kind of figure out a way to begin the sermon with a little humor to keep, make sure you're awake, because this is not as funny. Um, while social media has a real impact on believers and the church, both positively and negatively, depending on how we choose to use it, the other word social that I want to focus on today is actually a biblical idea. But the world, as it has with so many other things that are either good or neutral, has found a way to corrupt it. I'm talking about social justice. A lot of us, when we hear that word, think, ooh. And a lot of us think, yes. God is a God of justice, my brothers and sisters. God is a God of justice. It's an inescapable conclusion for any honest reader of Scripture. And considering the definition of social that we looked at a moment ago, isn't all justice essentially social? It has to do with people and how we get along and how we live together, right? In other words, how can you think of justice as not having to do with human beings and their living together and dealings with one another, which is the very definition of social? So social justice is about human beings. It's about how we treat each other. And it was God's idea. The prophet Micah said it clearly and succinctly. This is on the cover of your bulletin this morning. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All three of these things are very important. Do justice, love kindness, or some versions say love mercy, and Undergirding that is our walking humbly with our God. That's kind of important in these days too. We walk humbly with Him because He made us. And He knows best about how we are to treat one another. How we're to interact with each other. And you know what? The good news is He didn't leave us to fumble around in the darkness trying to figure out what's the best way that we can live with each other. He left us His eternal Word which gives us very clear guidance. Even the world knows what we sometimes call the golden rule. I wonder how many unbelievers realize that this is a deeply biblical principle, and it's drawn from the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is a summary of all the law and all the prophets. In Luke 6.31, we read, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Very simple concept, isn't it? Very hard, apparently, to act out. 
In Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves. We just do. So that's just a reality. This is not an encouragement to love yourself. This is a recognition that we do love ourselves. And because we do love ourselves and we do take care of ourselves, what it's saying is we need to love others that much. God wants us to do justice because God is the original just being. And God the Son, Jesus, fulfilled God's justice on the cross when he took the just punishment for our sins upon himself. Part of growing in the image and likeness of Christ is to do justice. This is who God is. This is one of his key attributes. He is just. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the rock Speaking of God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then in Psalm 97 too, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It's interesting to note how many times we see the word justice in scripture combined with the word righteousness. That's because they are, while not identical, they are related ideas. Justice in Scripture involves honest and fair business dealings and faithfulness to keep one's word, as well as not taking advantage of the poor or those with less power or protection. Righteousness involves doing what is right in the sight of God, especially with regard to to, to conduct towards others. So there's the social, the other idea, right? And the way we treat them, that has to do with justice. The Hebrew word for justice occurs in various forms, more than 200 times in the Old Testament. The most basic meaning is to treat people fairly. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of social status, but it means more than punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights, what they are due, whether it's punishment or protection, or care. Yet there's another word that can be translated as being just, and is in some places, though it's usually translated as being righteous. As we noted, the ideas of justice and righteousness are not totally synonymous, but they are often very closely connected. The other Hebrew word refers to a life of right relationships. When most people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, this Hebrew word refers to -to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. It's not surprising then to discover that these two Hebrew words are brought together scores of times in the Bible. Now, rectifying justice is what happens in our criminal justice system. Some have called these two words primary justice and rectifying justice. Uh, Rectifying justice is when wrongdoers are punished for their crimes and victims of unjust treatment are cared for. But primary justice, think about this, if primary justice was practiced more in the world, it would make rectifying justice almost unnecessary. If everyone or even most people actually lived in right relationship to everyone else, if everyone actually treated others as they wanted to be treated, we wouldn't have today's social justice issues. 
That's because righteousness, a kind of justice in the way we treat one another, is about being in a right relationship with God, and that righteous life is very social, isn't it? Yet in our sin-sick world, we don't always see this kind of righteousness practiced, which leads to just treatment of one another when it is practiced, and unjust treatment when we often see just the opposite of that. The only answer to this sin-sickness is the gospel. So biblical justice includes all forms of God-ordained justice. That's the justice that belongs, for example, to the government, which we read about in 1 Peter 2.14, and Peter talks about governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's public or legal justice. But then there's justice between individuals, and that's where a lot of this rubber meets the road, how we treat one another. And as we've seen, God cares deeply about that too. We see this from the beginning of God's dealings with his people. Speaking of Abraham, God said, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, how? By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So the predominant theme of this narrative that we just read from in Genesis chapter 18 is justice. This passage from this section of Genesis is from God's judgment of Sodom. Now there's a terrifying picture of a just God who judges sin. But in that, God was clear that Abraham was to teach his children about this and his children's children what righteousness and justice are. To do justice. God appointed rulers to do justice. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, about David. It said, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Most of the Hebrew prophets spoke out about injustice and oppression. And this was a constant concern of the righteous Hebrew kings. Proverbs 8.20 Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. We read in Amos chapter 5, verse 7, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to earth. Talking about the evil people in Amos' day that he was prophesying against. And then a few verses later in 524, another famous justice passage, but let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But before the verse from Amos chapter 5, verse 24, God, through the prophet Amos, told the people how he hated their rituals. I want to read that from uh, 521 to 23. God said, I hate... I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. So God's saying here that rituals mean nothing apart from heart change. And heart change leads to behavioral change just and righteous behavior. So 
he's telling the people here that they were hypocrites. Instead of ritual and performance, instead of just outward compliance, God wanted inward change. And he wanted that to be seen in a continuing commitment to justice and righteousness. He wanted a genuine concern for the rights of the poor. He wanted a concern that would roll on like an ever-flowing river, like a never-failing stream that did not run dry. God wanted a day-to-day life of integrity and goodness, justice, and righteousness. Think about this. If you, if you are a student of Scripture, and you know what? We should all be that. But if you're a student of Scripture, God has always judged hypocrisy. Who were Jesus' strongest words about? The Pharisees, right? When he exposed their hypocrisy, he called them whitewashed tombs, and that means they were clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. We've been talking about this in our study of Romans, and maybe you did in the Sunday night seminar in Romans, and how what God is looking for is inward heart change attitudes, not just outward compliance. Every parent wants to see their kids behave, right? But we want them to do it from a changed heart, changed attitudes, not just because we got their thumb on them, right? That's what Jesus was talking about. So before we can critique in any way the difference between true biblical justice and what we sometimes see today in the social justice movement, we must be clear and we must be honest about ourselves. Is our commitment to justice, let's even call it social justice, something God is building in our hearts and leading us to action, or is it ritual, all outward maybe just words. Do we care about justice? Do we care about the poor? Do we care about the oppressed? We could use the term social justice to describe what the early church did to rescue and adopt the infants who had been discarded like trash at the dumps outside many Roman cities. The same two words could describe one of my great heroes of the faith, William Wilberforce, the British member of parliament whose efforts to end slavery in England. And then we think about uh, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and others in the U.S. who helped to end slavery and help slaves in the, the era before, during, and after the Civil War. We could call other things that Christians are doing today social justice work. How about Christians' efforts to abolish human trafficking? We know people involved in those things. Work with inner city poor or homeless. Invest in microloans to help the destitute in the developing world. Those Christians who help build hospitals and orphanages. Those Christians who work to upend racism and protect the unborn. Now, think about that. Believe it or not, we have social justice warriors right here at TCF. If you begin to think about social justice in this way. How about Chuck and Diane Shepard working to protect the unborn? through their work with men to pregnancy center. And there, there's a real irony there. Think about this. We see that work as a legitimate, biblical work that you could call social justice. Yet the culture calls the right to kill the unborn reproductive justice. Have you ever heard that phrase? What a terrible twisting of the biblical theme of justice. We'll get to that in a moment. How about people like Mike Bros and Jim Grinnell and Steve Sperber and James Manchester and others in this fellowship and their combined decades of work with the mentally ill and the homeless? 
the many in this church, including Linda Steed and Chris Staub and Megan Failer and others who've worked with special needs kids through the Little Lighthouse. I know there are certainly some people that I've inadvertently left out. I just want you to see that we have people in this church who are involved in things that you could legitimately call social justice. These are downtrodden people groups, mentally ill, the unborn, the homeless, the least of these, oppressed, fellow human sufferers. This is all social justice work. And that's hardly a full list of what we could describe as legitimate biblical justice that Christians can and should be involved in. Still, the modern social, day, uh, social justice movement, as promoted and practiced by many in our culture, is not always synonymous with biblical justice. Many, not all, but many of their goals are actually very worthy. But the worldview from which they approach these very real issues is not a firm foundation to address genuine social ills. Now let me say that this is a huge topic. I spent hours reading, researching this topic. I had reams of notes and material that won't be in this morning's sermon. So don't worry, we won't be here an hour and a half today like we were last week for the sermon. I'm not picking on Dave, it was a great message. But I thought it was important that I spend time outlining biblical justice first so we'd have a firm foundation for any kind of critique of cultural social justice. We don't need a poll to tell us that no one would say they are for injustice. Anybody here for injustice? Uh, nobody would raise their hand even if you were, but nobody is. Nobody's for injustice. But if you ask half of Americans to describe the other half, most of that half would see the other half as pro-injustice. Isn't that true? Isn't that the division that we see in our culture today. So it comes down to worldviews. It comes down to the issues behind the issues. One of several books and articles I read in preparation for this message, and probably if you wanted to pick up one book that would uh, touch on this issue, and you just could pick up one and not many others, I would call this the one you'd want to get. It was by a professor at Biola named Thaddeus Williams, and he's written a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. He writes in that book, the transgender debate, of course that's become a social justice issue, isn't about pronouns. The same-sex marriage debate isn't about cakes. The abortion debate isn't about clumps of cells and coat hangers. The poverty debate isn't about greedy capitalists versus the commies. People on both sides of those controversies believe they are fighting for justice. Now Williams notes that our worldview is what we truly believe and act from. It's about who we are, where we came from, and where humanity is headed. He says a worldview is another phrase for what he called a madness machine. I really kind of like this analogy because it helps us think of what a worldview really is. Those statements are things in our culture that tend to make us mad. Huh? Into the madness machine goes questions. That baker declined to bake a cake for a gay couple's wedding. Should I be mad? That person makes a lot more money than the other person. Should I be mad? Those scientists want to genetically engineer a superior breed of humanity. Should I be mad? Answers to such questions never poof into existence in a vacuum. They emerge from an intricate, often subconscious, network of beliefs and convictions 
from a madness machine that yields conclusions about what in our news feeds should incur our wrath. So different worldviews, or as this writer says, madness machines, churn out different conclusions. Of course, that doesn't make justice relative. No more than truth is relative. We believe, because we have the foundation of Scripture, that there are certain worldviews that contain more truth than other worldviews and are better for social interaction and society and for human flourishing. We wouldn't be here in this church if we didn't believe that, that a biblical worldview was true of those things. Take the 50s and 60s civil rights movement. It was way, way different than its modern counterpart, Black Lives Matter. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Anybody ever read that book? Okay. He understood what he called the dignity and worth of human personality. He understood and wrote that human rights are God-given and that all men are created equal. As we noted in my message on racism last August, uh, King also hoped and prayed for that day when his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. As believers, we can all absolutely affirm that. And let me remind you what we looked at in that message, because I'm sure some of you have slept at least once or twice since last August. Racism is a sin against God. Period. End of sentence. And against people made in his image. There's no room for racism in any true Bible-believing church. And if there's a church you know that practices any form of racism, run the other direction. Just like you run from the guy with the Google pickup line. But today, the part of the social justice movement that inherits the legacy of civil rights is completely different, and Martin Luther King wouldn't recognize it. That's in part because this new worldview is based on what they call critical theory. That's a philosophical viewpoint. It's a worldview. And it leaves no room for argument or doubt. I want to revisit that in this video. Uh, This is a different video than the one I showed you last August. Because here's what I want to do with this this morning. I want to help equip us to think. I want us to be able to think about these things. Because even if you've... How how many of you remember the phrase from that message, critical theory? Okay, so again, a lot of you don't even remember that. And we had a video on it, and you don't remember that. You don't encounter that phrase very often unless you're in academia. uh, And unless you're in some maybe business circles. But the reality of critical theory is everywhere, my brothers and sisters. You see the practical outworking of that every day. So I want hope to equip you this morning to at least begin to think about this in a way that will help you and uh, from the foundation of our biblical worldview. Critical theory goes just beyond, beyond just race, and whether you ever hear that phrase or not, it's all around us. So I want to watch this video. It's about seven minutes, so pay attention. Conversation, and someone says, critical theory helps identify and end oppression. So anyone who cares about putting a stop to oppression should support critical theory. What would you say? Critical theory is the idea that any human society can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. According to critical theory, those who have power always oppress those who don't. Therefore, any institution, relationship, 
and belief system established by those in power is best understood as a tool of oppression. The categories of oppressor and oppressed can further be divided into smaller categories based on things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Whether you are an oppressor or one of the oppressed is determined by your group identity. As a result, almost everything, including institutions like police, government, religion, and the family, are tools used by some to oppress those in other groups. Although all of us should care about ending unjust oppression, critical theory is not helpful in doing this. And here are four reasons why. First, power and oppression does not explain everything. Critical theory says that power is the best way to understand everything. But is that true? Some relationships have a clear hierarchy, like employers and employees, or teachers and students. Some institutions, like governments and the police, also represent power. But power dynamics are not the best way to understand everything. Relationships, like parenting and marriage, are best understood in terms of love and respect, not power. While everything is capable of corruption, institutions like hospitals are not best understood as tools of oppression either. Things like mathematics, science, and even theology should be analyzed in terms of truth, not power. Assuming that every institution or field of study is a tool of oppression denies us the opportunity to learn what they have to teach us. Oppression exists, but reality is not that one-dimensional. There is malice, but there is also love. Exploitation is real, but so is charity. Viewing everything as a tool of oppression misrepresents the world as it is. Which leads to the second point. Power and privilege are relative concepts. In critical theory, things like race, sexual orientation, and gender determine whether we are part of the oppressed or one of the oppressors. While we are all unique, characteristics that may be an asset in one context could be a liability in another. For example, what makes you privileged in New York City may make you oppressed in Iran. Individuals who are privileged in a meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention may be oppressed across the street at a gathering of the Human Rights Campaign. Reality doesn't support the idea that a person will always be oppressed because of X or always be privileged because of Y. In the same way, the idea that all women, all Chinese people, or all Muslims have the same experience just isn't true. Which leads to the third point. Lived experience is not an infallible guide to truth. Critical theory argues that the lived experience of oppressed groups gives them unique insights into truth that should not be challenged. While everyone deserves to be heard, no one should be above critique because we are all capable of being wrong. Does an allergic reaction to vaccines mean I have an unchallengeable access to truth about vaccine safety? Does a religious experience give rise to an unchallengeable claim to truth about religion? Every parent understands that it is very possible to feel oppressed without actually being oppressed. Our experiences are important, but they are not all that's important. In a broken world, experience leads us away from truth as often as it leads us to it. Our experiences should be understood, 
But one reason life is best lived in community is that we are all capable of misunderstanding our experiences. Parents, friends, counselors, teachers, and pastors can share perspectives that may not be obvious to us. What critical theory calls oppression, others might call wisdom. Which leads to the fourth point. Critical theory is self-defeating because it ignores the power dynamics it creates. Critical theory claims that when one group gains dominance over another, it should be overthrown. In some places, however, critical theory has the power. Therefore, by its own rules, in places like public universities, critical theory should be overthrown by those it silences and oppresses, who, coincidentally, happen to be the same people critical theory overthrew to begin with. Effectively, critical theory calls for endless revolution and discontent in the name of preventing anyone from ever having power. Though the abuse of power is undeniably bad, social order is undeniably good. Critical theory confuses influence for power. We don't hate influence or even power. We hate it whenever influence and power are used in the wrong ways. Instead of revolting against everything that has influence, we should see to it that cultural influences are used on behalf of what is good, true, and beautiful. Critical theory identifies a real problem, but gives us nothing to aspire to. We don't want to be mad at each other all the time. We want to understand how a world full of people who are different can live together cooperatively. That certainly requires us to understand how power dynamics work, but it requires us to understand many other things as well. So next time someone tells you that decent people should embrace critical theory because critical theory opposes oppression, remember these four things. Power and oppression does not explain everything. Power is real and oppression exists, but so does love, kindness, respect, and charity. And sometimes they're a better explanation for what we see. Power and privilege are relative concepts. Your privilege may not extend to the next room, much less the next country. Lived experience is not an infallible guide to truth. We all have unique experiences and we all deserve to be understood. But our experiences don't make us right and none of us is above critique. Critical theory is self-defeating because it ignores the power dynamics it creates. Once the oppressed take power from the oppressors, that makes them the oppressors. And then we start all over again. What sense does that make? For What Would You Say? I'm Joseph Backholm. Hey, I hope you loved the video. If you did, make sure you hit subscribe so you can see the next one. I wanted to say too that those, this video and many other really good ones with different themes are freely available online. I can send you the link if you'll ask me for it or email me or whatever. There's simply no worldview neutral way to think about or act out justice. Ideological social justice says that the human mind defines what is ultimately real. A biblical worldview says God gets to define ultimate reality because he is the creator. All the things that we Christians believe, those things that the world finds offensive, start in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything flows from that. 
Today's social justice believes that our fundamental problem as humans, as we just saw in the video, is oppression. According to this worldview, white heterosexual men have established dominant power structures that oppress and subjugate women, people of color, and LGBTQ people. But a biblical worldview tells us that our fundamental problem as human beings is that all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, not just white men. White men are certainly included in that all. That rebellion results in broken relationships between God and man, broken relationships between people. The social justice worldview believes the solution to the problem of humanity is nothing short of revolution, overthrowing the oppressors. Oppressed victims and their allies need to unite to deconstruct, overthrow these oppressive power structures, these systems, these institutions. As we've already noted, the biblical worldview says that the solution to our problem is the gospel. Jesus, the word made flesh, took the punishment we deserve for our sin, for our rebellion, and in that, he showed us mercy we don't deserve. Because of his work on the cross, we can find peace, and we can find reconciliation in our relationships, broken by our modern-day rebellion. The modern social justice worldview says that objective truth, reason, logic, and evidence are tools that oppressors use to maintain their domination. They believe that we gain knowledge of truth only through victims, through their experience in living with oppression. Because of that, they have greater insight than their oppressors. Of course, the biblical worldview is called that because we believe in divine revelation. God reveals himself in his written word. He reveals himself in the law written on our hearts. He reveals himself in creation. Finally, and most revealingly, the social justice worldview answers the question of authority, answering that question of what standard we should live by, by saying that the victims of oppression, that is, people of color, women, LGBTQ, are the final authority. Their claims are based on their lived experiences, and they must be believed without question. That's why, in many places, I could stand up here and tell you I am a six-foot-six black woman. And parts of our culture will tell you that you're being a bigot if you question that. Now, if you think that's ridiculous, and I would, I would actually be, rather be a six-foot-six black man who played in the NBA, but if you think that whole idea, that whole thought is ridiculous, I want you to watch this video. It's the same guy produced by a different company or a different group, but uh, it was produced about four years ago, and this will give you an idea. I show you this to show you here's what we're up against. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're 
sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? question why <laughs> because you're not <laughs> no i don't think you're six five. if you truly believed you're six five i don't think it's harmful i think it's fine if you believe that it doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me i'm wrong i wouldn't tell you you're wrong no but i say that um i don't think that you are i feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries no, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five... Uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? got what we've got four college students here this morning okay these were your counterparts four years this was four years ago okay at the University of Washington Washington State and uh, I don't know about you that frightens me I mean it's it's funny on the one hand but it frightens me that that is is kind of a prevailing worldview that you see on that college campus and I know that you don't see that on your campuses at ORU or College of the Ozarks, but you see that on a lot of college campuses these days. And, uh, and Caleb's shaking his head. He probably saw that at TU, okay? So 
this was four years ago, and the culture has gotten way more confused and radical since then. This is what we face as believers trying to remain faithful to the truth. This explains why LGBTQ individuals, uh, for them, their sexual activity isn't viewed as a choice or a behavior, but an identity. They would say, it's not what I do, it's who I am. If you oppose someone's homosexuality in this view, you're denying their very humanity, just like a Nazi is dehumanizing a Jew or a slaveholder is dehumanizing a slave. There's no forgiveness for such a person. But we believers live by a different standard. We live by the Word of God as our final authority. The Word of God is our standard and authority for what we believe and what we do. In much of our culture, reality now is the subjective product of individual human minds, just like we saw there that these uh, college students in Washington believe that. If all reality is subjective, think about this, then we really don't have any basis, any genuine foundation for human rights if everything is subjective. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy said that the new human right, one that apparently supersedes every other human right, is, and I quote, the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. This is a direct quote from a Supreme Court ruling. Can we see how this would be a problem? Everybody has the right to define their own meaning and their own existence, etc., etc. If each person is a law unto himself or herself, on what basis can we have order in a society? Who has ultimate authority if all of us are our own little gods? The majority rules in that case, and that's what a lot of people are pushing for because they're in the majority now, and we are not, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are not in the majority anymore. And if the majority rules were right back where we started, except as we noted in the video earlier, with well, a different group being the oppressors. This is the world we're in now. We have to learn as believers how to live in it. So we should always care about true biblical justice. That's based on our commonality as people created in the image of God. We should always be gracious and civil, not just in person, but on social media. Man, I, I, confession, I have a Facebook page. I never get on it, hardly ever. I hate it. I hate the level of discourse on Facebook, and I'm sure that's true in other social media. Man, we don't have to say everything we think. Some people have, excuse the expression, diarrhea of the mouth. They just, they say too much. They just, you don't need to get into everything, and and some of those social media uh, outlets are not the best place to have those kinds of conversations, even if you're nice about it. So think about that. Think about how we can live. We don't always have to give our opinion. Some forums are probably not that great for doing so. So let's do stand against racism. Let's do stand against oppression, even when it's someone from our side who is, quote-unquote, our side, who is saying or doing something racist or oppressive. We need to stand up against that. But let's also stand firm always for the truth. Let's always get the log out of our own eye first. Let's work to find ways to engage people that we disagree with in ways that honor God and also honor the truth. We know that real change can only come when it's inward 
and spiritual before it can be worked out externally in our society and in our culture. In the words of the late Scottish theologian John Stott, evangelism is the major instrument of social change. For the gospel changes people, and changed people can change society. And that's where we're going to go next time I'm in the pulpit in a few weeks when we look at what it means for us as believers in Christ to be exiles in our own country. And that's where we are. We're heading more and more into a season of exile where we are the minority and we are weird and we are different. And I think we need to embrace that. We need to embrace that. We're in the minority now. How can we take the example of what the early church did and continue to be his witnesses in our increasingly confusing and sometimes even hostile culture? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a just God. We are grateful that you invented justice. Father, we're grateful that when we are truly following you, we do look out for the other person. We do do unto others as we would have them do unto us, Father God. We pray that Christians would truly uh, reveal that, truly shine in that arena, Lord, where we are the ones who are loving people. And Father, that we would truly make a difference in our own little circles of influence. But Father, we also pray that you would help us to discern and stand for the truth. When the worldviews that are unbiblical, Lord, are uh, now holding sway in all of the public arenas. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to discern that and help us to stand firm, help us to speak lovingly, help us, Father God, to, uh, to be salt and light. And so we thank you for the reality that you care about the poor, you care about the oppressed, and help us, Father God, to identify ways in which we can care about the poor and we can care about the oppressed even as we stand firm in the truth that you gave us. In Jesus' name, amen.